Thank you, Sophia and Dan, for reading for us. Uh, it's good to see all our church this morning. Uh, welcome if this is your first time joining us. Uh, my name is Shui, and uh, I'm uh, one of the ministers at this church, and uh, I obviously, in particular, uh, this 9 o'clock congregation on Sundays. And uh, we're thrilled that you, you can join us this morning. Uh, it'll be good if you can have uh, Ephesians 4 open in front of you, because uh, we're going to be looking at that uh, part of God's Word uh, for the next little while. Uh, the mercury is going to start rising soon, I'm told, by my uh, weather report. And so uh, I'm going to uh, pray to God that he would be with us this morning and uh, help us to concentrate uh, so that we can understand uh, what he has to say. So let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much that you are a God who has been victorious uh, in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Uh, thank you that we can uh, come together this morning and meet in his name. Uh, Father, we come um, this morning with all sorts of uh, different thoughts in our minds, uh, different uh, experiences of the week. But uh, we pray that now as we come before your word, uh, we ask that you would rid our mind of distractions, uh, help us to concentrate uh, for the next little while, and uh, help us to understand what you have to say. And uh, we pray that you would be powerfully at work in our lives, that the things we understand might be lived out uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, as you know, Sydney has had a real estate boom. Everywhere you look these days, there are buildings uh, or new apartments being built. They're going up right across the city and virtually in every suburb. Have you seen them? And uh, each time I look in my mailbox, I seem to get a glossy brochure wanting me to buy an apartment off the plan. Uh, it comes every single day, almost, uh, in my letterbox. It's usually a fancy brochure with pictures and artists' impressions of what the apartment is going to look like in the end. Uh, you've probably seen them. However, the thing we don't get to see are the detailed plans of such apartment buildings. Uh, you know, these are the architectural plans. These are the floor plans. Uh, these are the things that the builders and engineers and plumbers actually use to know how to build the apartment block that the designer has in mind. Now, uh, if you've joined us for the first time this morning, uh, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Ephesians is a terrific letter that tells us of God's big plans for this world. I hope you uh, have gotten that big point up to this uh, part of the letter. And so, for example, in our key verse of chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, it's a key verse, God's plan for this world is to unite all things in heaven and on earth under the headship or the lordship of Jesus Christ on the last day. In chapter 2, we saw that the key way that he is do doing this is by uniting Jew and Gentile together, and indeed all nations, people from all nations together, and also uniting them or reconciling them to, to God himself through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, we've seen the exalted place of the church, that as God joins Jew and Gentile together to be part of his church, 
Well, the church becomes God's trophy cabinet, so to speak, displaying God's wisdom to all the world and indeed to all the spiritual powers in the heavenly places. And so everything in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians has been, if you like, the glossy brochure of God's big plans for this world and the church that he is building, which plays such an important part in God's plans. However, I want to suggest to you this morning that as we move from chapters 1 to 3 uh, into chapters 4 to 6, we are now moving into the more detailed architectural plans of God's plan for this world, of his building project. Uh, You can see it there in chapter 4, verse 1, for example. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, Chapters 1 and 3 have been about God's big plans for this world. Chapters 4 to 6 about walking in those plans. It's about practically living out what it means to live in accordance with God's plans for his people and for this world. And in particular, our passage this morning is really the detailed plan of how God is going to build his church. The detailed plan of how God is going to build his church. It is, if you like, God's church growth strategy. How do you grow the church? What do we have to do under God to ensure that church at nine will keep on growing and be healthy? Uh, What part do you have to play? And what part do I have to play in taking part in God's building project? Uh, Well, you'll notice there that the first thing that Paul mentions in God's church growth strategy is that you and I are to maintain unity. You and I are to maintain unity. You can see it there in verse 3, can't you? Where he says to the Christians around Ephesus, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The choice of the word maintain there is an interesting one, isn't it? For you only maintain something that you already have. Is that right? And so, for example, we take our cars for maintenance because I'm assuming that your cars are, you know, doing okay at the moment. It's driving well. And so we take it to the garage or to the, to the mechanic so that he can maintain what, he, what is already there. And so what Paul is saying here is that we have already been united. It's already there. We have already been united by God with one another as part of God's family seated in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, here on earth, we need to actually work hard to maintain that unity visibly if, if what is happening in heaven is a reality. Now, uh, you can see there that Paul speaks about three qualities that are essential if you and I are to maintain unity. Uh, Firstly, in verse 2, he talks about humility. Humility. Now, humility is not the same thing as shyness. 
In fact, I think that the shy person can often be the proud and selfish one, can't they? The shy person can often be the one who thinks so much about themselves that they don't really want to get out of what is comfortable in order to love and serve others. Now, humility is an attitude that considers the needs of other people above ourselves and above our own needs so that we seek the good of others before us. Uh, As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, humility is not thinking less about yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. That's a good one, isn't it? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Secondly, in verse 2, again, uh, Paul speaks about gentleness. Now, gentleness is not the same thing as weakness. In fact, it is usually the case that the one who is strong is the one who is capable of being gentle, and the one who is weak and insecure is often the one who can be the bully. But being gentle is about being kind rather than being harsh. It is about being encouraging rather than putting other people down. It is about being gracious and leading by example rather than uh, condemning other people around you. And thirdly, Paul speaks about patience. Now, patience is not about you know, bearing with someone so much that you never point out the wrong of the other person. Uh, sometimes I think we can be so patient that we never actually say anything to rebuke or correct or uh, help another person to grow in their Christian life. But patience does mean long-suffering. It means to be slow to rebuke. It means being slow to get angry. It means bearing with the faults of others again and again and again. Uh, and friends, I just want you to notice how countercultural uh, all this really is. For we live in a culture that is all about self-promotion rather than humility. We live in a culture that is all about aggressive ambition rather than gentleness. We live in a culture that demands everything now rather than being patient and bearing with the faults of others. No wonder our world is divided and fractured and breaking up. And sadly, it is precisely because these worldly ways of thinking have infected many churches that we see the same kind of division and fracturing and breaking up in many churches as well. But you, says Paul, you be humble. You be gentle with one another. You be patient and eager to maintain the unity that God has already given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, However, friends, uh, this unity that Paul speaks about is not a unity that simply jettisons or gets rid of the truth. 
It's not the postmodern nonsense that says, well, you know, at the end of the day, we all worship the same God in the end. And so it doesn't matter what religion you, 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 you belong to or what you believe. We're basically the same. For the unity that Paul speaks about here is unity around the one true and living God, not unity based on false claims. It is a unity that revolves around the one true and living God who exists in Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's why you can see there in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, that Paul speaks about the different persons of the Trinity. And uh, you'll see there that as uh, each person of the Trinity is mentioned, that Paul also speaks about the particular function of uh, that person of the Trinity in the Christian life. And so, for example, Paul mentions in verse 4, one spirit. And uh, you'll notice there that this one spirit is the one who joins us to the one body, that is the church. And it is also this spirit who gives us the one hope of the calling that we have as a child of God and as a citizen of heaven. Uh, In verse 5, you can see that Paul speaks there about the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he describes as one Lord. But this one Lord is also the subject of the one Christian faith and is the one uh, in whom we have been baptized into one baptism. Uh, I don't think he's talking there about uh, water baptism, you know, being dunked in water as as a sign of God's grace. But he's talking about the baptism of the Spirit there, the baptism that matters, where a person dies with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, dies to sin, which is buried with Christ, and rises again to live the new life as the new creation that God has created. Finally, in verse 6, Paul speaks about the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, he's speaking there about the God who is sovereign and who rules over all things. And he's so powerful and so sovereign that he can work through all things and work in all things to bring about his plans and purposes for this world. And so Paul encourages us to maintain the unity that we have around this one and true living God. But, friends, what are we united for? What are we united for? Well, Paul goes on to say that we are united in order for you and me to do the work of ministry. We are united so that you and I can do the work of ministry. Uh, Notice there that each and every member of the church has a part to play in this because everyone who belongs to Jesus has been given a gift by him. You can see it there in verse 7, can't you? Verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. One of the wonderful things about the church is that our unity 
does not mean that God wants each and every one of us to be the same. You know, that is what religious cults and pseudo-Christian sects try to do. They try to create unity by forcing everyone in the cult or in the sect to be the same. However, the Bible teaches us that in the church, God gives to each and every member different gifts. Different gifts which can be used for the benefit of other people. And so to Joshua, he has given the gift of music to benefit the church. And to Sophia, he has given the gift of administration to benefit the church. And to Matthew, uh, who uh, I haven't seen this morning, um, he has given the gift of wisdom to benefit the church. In fact, the Bible reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that if you are a Christian person, God has given each and every one of you at least one gift that you can use in order to serve other people and to benefit the church for their good. But here's the surprise in Ephesians 4. For I don't think Paul in Ephesians 4 is talking about gifts in terms of the abilities and talents that God has given to each and every one of us. He's not talking about the gifts that other parts of the New Testament speak about. Rather, he's talking here about particular people who have been given as gifts to the church. Uh, You can see it there, for example, in verse 8, where Paul quotes from uh, Psalm 68, which was read out to us earlier. Um, He says uh, in verse 8, quoting from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, that, that is when God ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, friends, uh, what this psalm is speaking about, I think, is the victory of God in saving Israel from slavery in in Egypt. And the image here is of, of God himself ascending to his holy mountain like a conquering army general, parading the captives who are the spoils of war. However, the captives here are not actually the Egyptians whom God has plundered and destroyed, but it's actually the Israelites whom he has taken captive to be his own people. And uh, if you are familiar with the Old Testament story, um, you can, for example, find it in Numbers chapter 8. It is from these people, the people of Israel, that he has taken captive to himself that he takes another little group of people called the Levites and gives these Levites back to his, to his people so that they can serve them. The Levites are God's gift back to the people of Israel. But here's the thing. What Paul says here is that Psalm 68 actually points forward to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in his death and his resurrection. For Just like God in the Exodus, Jesus ascends. But this time he ascends into heaven in victory after conquering and being victorious over his enemies as he sits at God's right hand in heaven. He rises after he descends to the earth to die on the cross. 
And just like God, Jesus gives back to his people gifts. Gifts of certain men who will be able to serve them. Uh, Who are these men Jesus gives back to the church? Well, you can see them there in verse 11, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 says, And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, friends, I want you to ask yourself, what do all these people have in common? What do all these people, the uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, what what do they all have in common? Uh, I wonder whether we can uh, exercise our, our, our thinking a little bit. Uh, why don't you have a bit of a stretch and uh, ha- have a chat with one another as to what these people have in common. I'll give you uh, just, just a few quick moments to think about it. Okay, uh, do you have any thoughts? Uh, what do all these people have in common? You want to shout out an answer? Yep, was that a hand up, Tiffany, or are you scratching your nose? They are Christians. Yeah, they are people who uh, equip uh, other Christians for ministry. Thank you. You've jumped the gun a little bit. I was going to come to that point. <laughs> uh, but what's the character of these people? They want to serve God, certainly. Mm-hmm. What function do they play? Yep. Yeah, yeah. They are, they are people who teach the gospel, aren't they? They are people who teach the word of God. And so, for example, the apostles there uh, are the authorized eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And they're the ones who have left their teaching for us as the Holy Spirit inspired them to uh, write the New Testament documents. Uh, The prophets there uh, are not the Old Testament prophets. They're actually the New Testament prophets who taught the people the word of God up until the time of the, of the writing of the New Testament documents. But you also have there the evangelists, who are those particularly gifted in, in sharing the gospel with non-believers, who presumably taught the, the people in the church about how they also can share the gospel with unbelievers. And finally, you have the shepherds and teachers, who are not two distinct groups of people, but they belong together. For the shepherds, um, and another word for shepherds is the word pastor, uh, the pastors are the ones who primarily teach the word of God. That's their function. And so Paul says that it is those who teach the word of God, teach the Bible, who are God's gift to the church. Uh, I don't know how to put this, but I am God's gift to you. (laughs) Along with everyone else uh, in this church uh, who teach you the word of God. However, you know, that's a bit embarrassing, but uh, that's not because I'm any more inherently worthy than anyone else in this room. For I'm a miserable sinner, just like everyone else. But it is actually because of the function of those who teach the word of God. 
What is this function? Well, Tiffany mentioned, a bit, mentioned it a bit earlier, didn't she? You can see it there in verse 12. Um, the function of these uh, people who teach the word of God, in verse 12, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, friends, the function of people like me and others who teach the Bible is to help and equip each and every member of the church so that you can be doing the work of ministry. Do you find that surprising? Friends, I wonder whether sometimes we... You know, what, 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 what we're thinking as we come to church. Do we come to church thinking that we are here to do the work of ministry? I wonder whether each time you meet with your brothers and sisters, uh, perhaps during the week, your understanding of your role is to do the work of ministry. Uh, last year I went to a a large football match at ANZ Stadium uh, with my son. In fact, it was a sellout game, and there were close to 80,000 people who were there to watch these select few elite athletes on the pitch playing the football match. You know, it was a great time. Uh, we had a great time, and we had lots of fun watching the match, and we were entertained, and our team uh, actually won in the end, which was, is, is a rarity these days, but that, that was good. And I wonder, friends, whether sometimes many Christians can think about church in the same way. You know, we come to church along with everyone else, and we are here just to watch the select few do the work of ministry which simply means service. That's what the word ministry means. But we come to church in order to watch other people to do the work of ministry. Perhaps the minister, or the music team, or a select few people who get chosen uh, to come out to the front. You know, we might contribute some money, but essentially what we are expecting and what we are paying for is to watch others to do the work of ministry. Church, for many people, is a passive, recipient-based, spectator activity. It is content to let others do the work of ministry. However, I want you to see very clearly this morning that God says something completely the opposite. If we continue the football analogy, the pastor or the minister is essentially the coach, isn't he? He's the one who coaches other people and equips other people so that they can do the work of ministry. But uh, he's also you know, one of those old people who is all, you know, the, the coach as well as a player because he's always also on the field playing. But it is every Christian member of the church who ought to be on the field slogging their guts out so that the church can be encouraged and grow and be built up together in unity under the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christians, friends, do not sit on the stands. Christians are the ones who are on the pitch, who are slogging it out so that others can be encouraged. Well, who are in the, in the stands then? Well, the New Testament teaches us that it is actually the people we know who are not Christians who are sitting in the stands. It is our non-Christian family, it is our non-Christian friends, it is our non-Christian work colleagues who are sitting in the stands watching the lives of Christian people and watching the lives of those who belong to God's church. In fact, in Ephesians, it will also be the spiritual powers in the heavenly places who are gazing down and watching the church and seeing the wonderful wisdom of God at work as his people love and serve one another in ministry. And so, my brothers and sisters, God's question to you this morning, not my question, uh, God's question to you, as well as me this morning, is are we doing the work of ministry in building up the church? Are you personally doing the work of ministry so that other people can be encouraged and built up? Are we working hard to encourage other members of the church so that they can grow in their walk with Jesus? Are we looking after newcomers, eager to help them settle into the life of our church? Are we working hard to share the gospel with other people around us so that we are not only growing uh, in maturity, but we're also growing outward as well? Or are you simply turning a blind eye, expecting the pastor and the select few to be doing the work? Now, friends, I know that at Church at Nine, there are many who work hard week in and week out, uh, serving the congregation in many, many wonderful ways, and ways that uh, often we don't even see and don't get to acknowledge. And so uh, if that's you, let me encourage you this morning to just keep on going in doing those things, for that is God's will for his people. However, you may be here this morning, and you may be someone who has realized what the Bible teaches for the first time, that it is actually not just the minister and the select few who do the work of ministry, but it's also for you as well. And so if that's you, then let me encourage you to do something about that. You know, find out how you can get involved more in our church and how you can start serving other people with the gifts that God has given you. Or you may be here this morning and you've heard this part of Ephesians many times before. Uh, You've been reminded about this part of God's word again and again. But you've simply been slack and you've been making excuses. There have always been other things that have competed for your time and your energy. And you've simply been content to let others do all the work and tire themselves out. Well, if that's you, then let me plead with you this morning to repent of your selfishness. For that is not God's way. 
God's way is that everyone in the church gets involved in the work of the gospel. The work of ministry is for all the saints who belong to God. Now, there may be all sorts of reasons why you are a member of this church and you are not giving yourself to the work of ministry at the moment. Uh, Some of these may be good reasons, and I know that there are, you know, some of you who have good reasons for not being able to do as much. But at the same time, there may be excuses as well. And uh, this morning, I actually wanted to give everyone at church a concrete way to respond to God's word. Uh, If you know that you've been a member of this church for a while and you have not been actively serving in some way for the good and benefit um, and for the growing of this congregation, then I want to invite you over to my place. Uh, so that we can get the conversation started, so that we can start talking about how you can get involved. For it's my job to train people like yourself. I'm going to be there at home. I've got nowhere to go. And so why don't you come over to my place so that we can get that conversation starting. Uh, If you have a look in your bulletins, uh, you'll see there in the congregational news section uh, that um, I've set aside a few Sundays in April to think about serving together. Uh, I've called it the Ministry Expo. I couldn't think of any other name for it, so that's what I've called it. Uh, Why don't you come and uh, think with me about what are some of the needs of our church and how you can get involved. I'd love to see you there. And here is your opportunity to respond to God's word and for us to work together so you can get started in this. Uh, Now, friends, uh, we're running out of time, so I'm going to go through this last bit very quickly. Uh, We've seen that Paul speaks about uh, every member ministry. Um, But what is the goal of Christian ministry then? What is the goal of Christian ministry? Well, the goal of Christian ministry is maturity. Is maturity. Uh, You can see it there in verse 13 where Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, we, We saw before, didn't we, that the word maintain is about maintaining something that is already there. But here, Paul used the word attain, which is about gaining something which is not already there. It's about gaining something that we don't actually have at the moment. Uh, what is it that the church doesn't have, which, is, which should be the goal of Christian ministry? Well, it's the maturity of all the members of our church. We don't want anyone to be left behind. We want everyone to be growing in, in maturity, in Christian maturity. Uh, Paul speaks here about attaining the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. He's talking about growing in the knowledge of the Christian faith and of Christian teaching and doctrine. He also talks about mature manhood. He's talking about growing up as Christians. Finally, he speaks about the fullness of Christ. He's speaking about growing more like Jesus. 
in his perfection and in his righteousness and his glory. Why is it so important that we all do the work of ministry so that all the people in our church are built up to maturity? Well, it's because a group of immature Christians will be in great danger of making a shipwreck of their faith. You can see it there in verse 14. Paul says, We are to grow to maturity so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You know what children are like? They just can't make up their minds. You know, if you take children to buy ice cream, they simply cannot make up their minds. They want strawberry flavor one moment. And then they see their other sibling order chocolate, and then they want chocolate the next moment. And then they see rainbow flavor, and then they want rainbow flavor. You see, that's what Paul is saying here, isn't it? Christians who are children and immature are simply the ones who can't make up their mind about what they believe and what they are going to live for. And so when the next new fad in Christianity comes along or some particular internet preacher starts to spread their subtle form of heresy, well, they just get swept away and make a shipwreck of their faith. You may know some of your friends who have gotten swept away like this. But it's not just false teaching, is it? For I think a greater danger for a church like ours is that little by little, those who are immature get seduced by the ideas of this world. And so we fall into prayerlessness, for example, because we get seduced into thinking that we are in control of this world and not God, who we need to depend on. Or we fall into materialism, believing, that, uh, believing the lie that life is found in created things rather than the creator who has made us for himself. You see, there is great danger in being a Peter Pan Christian who never grows up to maturity. And so, how is it that you and I can do the work of ministry so that the whole church can together grow up to maturity? Well, if you've started to drift, I know it's been a little bit longer uh, this morning, this sermon, but if you've started to drift, now is the time to come back and join us because uh, I want us all to hear this. The way you and I do the work of ministry so that church will grow in maturity is by speaking the truth of the gospel to one another in love. That's what it says there, isn't it? In verse 15, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, friends, this is the essence of Christian ministry. It is speaking the truth of the gospel to one another 
so that we might grow more like Jesus. It is wrestling with one another about the decisions that we face in life and helping one another to see how God's word uh, comes to bear on those sort of decisions. It is praying with one another, seeking God's help as we seek to follow Jesus. It is going beyond the selfishness of simply talking about the things that are comfortable to us and start talking about the Word of God and how the Word of God should impact our lives. I love the fact that at our church, we do so many things and acts of service for one another. We bring food. Um, you know, we, we, uh, there are people looking after the, the sound. Uh, we do all sorts of things. People, you know, sweep up the carpet before people get here. Um, people do all sorts of acts of service out of a care and love for one another. But all those things are just so that we can speak the word of God to one another, isn't it? All those things are merely meant to support our speaking the truth of the gospel in love to one another. For in the end, it is not sweeping the carpet that will build up the church. It is actually the word of God, the powerful word of God that saves and uh, builds people up in maturity so that we can grow more like Jesus. And so, friends, are we speaking the truth of the gospel to one another? Are we doing the work of ministry? Let's pray.